Welcome, I'm Christina Michelle, inviting you to join me for Culture Rich Conversations, an ongoing feature of Juno Afternoon. Intimate partner violence is 100% preventable, yet in the United States, nearly 20 people per minute are abused by a partner. October is Domestic Violence Awareness Month, and today I'll discuss prevention through education with my guests, Dr. Camila Robles and Bobby Brumfield from the Men Against Domestic Violence Action Coalition. We'll learn the importance of teaching prevention in an effort to end domestic violence in the United States. From KTOO and Juno, this is Culture Rich Conversations. Culture Rich. Culture. Culture. Culture Rich Conversations is underwritten by Mark Stofa and Sarah Hannon, celebrating Juno's diversity of culture, language, and heritage. The Black Awareness Association would like to take a moment to recognize that Culture Rich Conversations is broadcast from Flinket Ani. We acknowledge those families who made use of this land and waterways for thousands of years and still cherish it as an important part of their way of life for today and future generations. Gunalschish, thank you. I'm Christina Michelle. Today I'm joined by my guest, Dr. Camila Robles. She's uh, tuning in from Colorado and Bobby Broomfield from the Men Against Domestic Violence Action Coalition, who is joining us from Omaha, Nebraska. Thank you so much to both of you for joining me today. No, thank you. Yeah, thank you for having us. Dr. Robles, I learned about you through a poetry group a few months ago and had the pleasure of hearing some of your beautiful art in the form of poetry, which was just so raw and captivating. And it talked about your experiences with DV and your journey to healing. And then later I learned that you were a doctor and I was just so excited when we were able to um, get you to come on the show to share with us about the work that you do. Um, can you start us off by just telling us uh, what led you to the work that you do now? And then Bobby will hear uh, the same from you. Yes. Yeah, so I am an osteopathic physician and I've been working for the last year or so doing trauma recovery using psilocybin integration therapeutic modalities. And what really led me to that was I started my residency for family medicine. I had just graduated from medical school, moved to Colorado to kick that off. And my partner assaulted me and broke my arm. And from there, it was just this very difficult year that followed, but really led me to this place where, you know, sometimes where the worst things happen, it opens these doorways for such a beautiful transformation and a journey really back to self and really understanding, you know, here I was in this very high professional, high functioning position. And, and yet I had experienced really severe domestic violence. And, you know, it just showed that that domestic violence really does transcend your education level. And it, it was my journey to try to understand what was it about me and that, that I accepted certain things for so long that inevitably led to this really horrific event in my life. And from there, I've just had this beautiful pathway of self-healing and self-discovery and this huge shift in consciousness of, and that my, 
my, I say participation, but me being in a domestically violent situation actually was really the long-term repercussion of my childhood trauma, being a survivor of sexual abuse in childhood and how that kind of propagated me to accept abusive behavior. So uh, that is sort of in a nutshell, kind of what got me to where I am today. Uh, and I, and I am just so happy that I get to do this. Work, so. Thank you so much. And to those who are not familiar with what, what an osteopathic doctor does, can you explain that? Yes. And so when you go to medical school to become a doctor, you want to grow up and become a doctor, there's MDs, the medical doctorate degree, and then there's the DO, which is a doctor of osteopathic medicine. They're the exact same. We train the same, but osteopaths get an additional 100 to 200 plus hours of education, specifically in neuromuscular medicine, functional medicine, a lot more in depth with anatomy and physiology. So we can do more manual, unquote, manual medicine um, versus a medical. MD who does not get that training. So that's really the difference there. All right. Excellent. Thank you so much. And Bobby, I recently learned about you and your organization, and I'm very excited to hear about DV prevention from your perspective as a male. Can you share with us about your background and what led you to do the work that you're doing now? Uh, Sure. Uh, So uh, we, we the, the organization uh, MADVAC, Men Against Domestic Violence Action Coalition, is kind of like a um, uh, like a brainchild of, of two of us, uh, myself and another retired officer. Uh, the way I, I got into it myself was, you know, as a young Marine traveling, uh, working with host countries uh, services. One of the things I noticed right off the bat was that. Uh, places that had where women had more say, more value, uh, were a lot better off than a lot of the places where we went, where women were like second, third class uh, citizens. And and I, I noticed it, but I didn't notice it as a you know as a nineteen year old kid. Uh, but then when I got out of the Marines and joined the uh, police department, it, that's when I really started seeing domestic violence up close and personal. Uh, uh, seeing the damage uh, that that it, it does to, to children who witness it, um, and and it, it just kind of stuck with me throughout my entire career. So uh, once I got out of law enforcement, uh, I was I started a, a self defense class, and I started offering free self defense for for women, uh, thinking that you know I, I wasn't I didn't know anything about power and control or any of that. I'm thinking. If women could fight back, you know, they could they would be better off, you know, uh, uh, again, not understanding power and control. So in one of those self-defense for women classes, a uh, was a domestic violence advocate who invited me to come to a couple of meetings. So I I went to a meeting. They explained, you know, uh, power and control, all the dynamics, the different types of of violence, you know, the physical, financial, uh, just just everything that just kind of immersed me in it. Um, I bumped into a, uh, a fellow retired police officer who was working DV for the county attorney. He was working as a domestic violence investigator for the county attorney. Uh, we just sat down and said, hey, how can we, you know, take what we're learning here and spread it out amongst you know, other men uh, who who had the same mindset that we had, you know, going in that, 
you know, not understanding power and control and, and, and answering that question, why won't she leave? And uh, so that that's how MAVAC started. We just, you know, started uh, going to different places, talking to young men and, and, and uh, more and more men got involved and, and we, we brought on a, uh, a childhood education uh, uh, chair who, who volunteered some time and wrote a curriculum for us. And, and uh, we vetted it in front of, a, you know, some advocates to make sure that we were on the right track and, and they loved it and, and it just took off. That's awesome. Thank you so much, Bobby. Can we talk about what domestic violence is? How would you uh, each define it? Because I think a lot of people have an idea of it just being one thing that, you know, it's a male partner who is the perpetrator against a female partner. And we know that there's uh, there's so much more to DV and actually that that men are. are uh, survivors. There's just as many male survivors of DB as there are women. Um, But how would you define domestic violence? Um, Dr. Robles, I'll start with you first. And mute. So, and I am kind of using this definition from various websites that I looked at that define domestic violence as, and basically one person mistreats another in a continuous context, whether that, you know, whenever you're in an intimate context, as far as like dating or marriage, no matter what that looks like, uh, as far as the relationship, but it can be physical, it can be financial, it can be emotional. Um, and you know, it could be anything from hiding car keys and not letting your partner get away to controlling all of the finances, not letting your partner have a say in those things. And then really anything physical, hitting, throwing, um, pushing, shoving, biting, all of those things. And a lot of the times there's, there's patterns that we see that progress from, you know, sometimes it starts with the emotional abuse. And then that is really what opens the gateway to allowing the physical abuse to start. So that's sort of my definition of that. Thank you, Bobby. Uh you know, I, I guess I, I'm just we. I've always just followed the traditional, you know, uh, definition that that the advocates had, had, you know, give us that is is just an act of, of power and control. Um, I, I think that um, you know, d- domestic violence is is to me, it, it, it basically is just, just brutal control, to be honest with you. And I, and I know there's different forms. It's not physical, but you know, any, any sort of control where you're taking over someone's life, um, with, you know, threatening behavior, um, is, is that's brutality. So it's just brutal control. Um, is, is, it's about the only way I can really, you know, if I had to define it outside of the traditional, uh, definition that that's what it would be for me. Thank you. I I also just wanted to may I add one thing too. Um, really, it's 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 almost like a unconscious sometimes. I'm not saying that a lot of abusers are not consciously doing this, but I think a lot of times it's an unconscious, as he as Bobby said, need for control rooted in in your own internal insecurity and instability that leads you to have this 
almost obsessive need to control the people around you because that is what they need in order to feel safe themselves. So it's this, it's, and there's a lot of different psychology into it, but I just really want to, I think, I feel like that's an important component to understand, you know, is that sometimes this is not just, you know, somebody that, Oh, I want to be mean to my partner. So I'm going to do this. These are very deeply rooted psychological issues with unhealed traumas that then are propagated into that person's intimate life with those closest to them as well. Thank you for saying that, Dr. Robles, because I know that when we have conversations about domestic violence and intimate partner violence, we tend to um, focus a lot on the 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 victim or the survivor. Um, and there's not a lot said about the person who is uh, perpetrating the violence. And so would you, from, from your perspective, would you say that someone who we would see as a perpetrator is, um, could also have been a victim themselves and they're carrying forward maybe trauma, unhealed trauma um, themselves? So much. Um, And again, a lot of my work centers around something called an ACE score. These are adverse childhood event Mm -hmm. scores that talk about the things that we experience in our childhood and how that results in the experiences that we have as adults, Um, whether that's alcoholism to chronic lung diseases. It's a really good marker of your propensity to have certain issues. And so, yes, I would say that many people, not just men, but men and women who are perpetrators of domestic violence have either seen this in childhood or witnessed their parents being abused in some way, uh, which again, I don't want to jump the gun, but something I definitely want to talk on more is that, you know, these are conditioned behaviors. This is, you know, and again, when we talk about generational traumas and things like that, these are things that started in childhood that, that, inhibit our ability to understand somewhat right and wrong or you know even understanding that hey we are we're being abusive because it's something that already started so long ago we don't even recognize it as being abusive whether that's the person abusing or the person taking abuse and you know a lot of people who are the quote-unquote victims or in that situation of receiving domestic violence abuse we had been used to already going through that for so long. We didn't understand that that was abuse, you know? So definitely. And I think that's why conversations like this are so important because we get a chance to talk about um, prevention and part of prevention is education. And it's about um, knowing and being able to recognize what abuse is. And it's far more than, you know, someone physically harming you. Right. So um, let's talk about um domestic violence and, uh, and teens. And uh, Bobby, I understand that you work with teens in your organization. Um, can you share about what the work that you do with the youth? Yeah, so um, we our curriculum um, is, is broken down in, in several areas. Uh, there's there's DV 101 where we're explaining what domestic violence is, um, you know, the physical, the financial, the mental, the emotional. Uh, then we have uh, what, what uh, Dr. Robles was, was speaking on. Uh, we, we talk about emotional maturity and learned behaviors. 
a lot of young men are growing up witnessing domestic violence and and they think this is the way uh I should handle uh things and and uh, and a, a lot of young ladies you know young ladies join our our groups as well and uh, a lot of the times you know they they talk about things that um you know that that are unhealthy behaviors from their boyfriends, but they think, well, that's my boyfriend. That's, you know, he's, he's supposed to do that, or he has the right to do that. He's my boyfriend. So, so that there, there is, uh, there's a lot of learned behaviors that, that we, we try to talk to him about. And we, then, then we talk about a healthy versus unhealthy masculinity. Uh, we used to talk about toxic masculinity, but for some reason, toxic set people off. Mm. So we had to kind of, <laughs> we kind of, we had to reel back and it was like, okay, well, let's call it unhealthy masculinity. And in that we, you know, we may throw out some words or have them throw out some words like aggression, you know, okay, when is aggression healthy? When is it unhealthy? You know, you want to be aggressive on the football field, but do you want to be aggressive in your, in your relationships? Uh, and 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 that's normally the the type of conversations that we have with young men. Uh, I would say high school and up. Um, but we we try not to point the finger and say this is what you should do. This is how you should act. We we kind of guide it and let them come to that conclusion. And you can you can see the the, the wheels spinning in their heads when you're having these conversations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we, we try not to just you know, point the finger. I've seen a lot of gang programs in, in, in my day as law enforcement where it was a bunch of old guys like me talking about what they did in their day. And, you know, they're not trying to hear that. So so we we, we try to just lay it out, uh, let them uh, in their own words figure out what healthy is versus unhealthy. Uh, we talk a lot about consent, uh, what it is, what it isn't. Um, and, and um, uh, again, the big thing for us is that we want to guide them into figuring it out, not not just tell them uh, with the hopes that they're going to go out and, and, you know, talk to their peers about it. Uh, our goal is to create young leaders uh, that are going to advocate against uh, domestic and sexual violence. And and we, you know, they, they're free to, to reach out to us at any time if they need more information or pamphlets or whatever. We 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 try to be that that middleman because we're not service providers, but we can always go to service providers and get whatever they're looking for or set up a meeting with them. But um, but that that's that's pretty much how we um, engage them. Uh, but we're really, really careful not to point fingers and and. Um, um, you know, tell them what to do. We want them to figure it out. We want them to understand it in their own words, go through their own thought processes. And, and you know, uh, one, one of the things that, you know, real quick, um, you know, they a lot of people say, well, you know, it's just anger management issues. So mm. one of our questions is, you know, if it's anger management, when you get angry at the grocery store, do you beat up the clerk? You know, do you beat up people wherever, you know, why are you waiting to get to your girlfriend mm. to become violent all of a sudden? So is it really anger management? Uh, because you can manage it pretty much anywhere else, but in your relationship. So so we we just kind of, you know, lay that out there and, and have them think about it and give us feedback. And and uh, and, and then hopefully they'll take that and, and talk to their peers. 
I love that. And that is such a great point because um, sometimes people will say, well, you know, it's because he was drinking or because he was doing drugs. But it's like, okay, lots of people, you know, they use alcohol or other substances and they don't abuse their partner. So there has to be something else going on. Um, Dr. Mm -hmm. Robles, did you want to add anything? Oh, that was so much, Bobby. And I, you, you made so many really beautiful points. I was trying to take a few notes because the first one was, you know, transitioning certain words like toxic to unhealthy. And I think this is such an important thing that we really need to bring this to our cultural forefront because certain words do have certain activating factors in our consciousness, right? That result in certain things. There's a way and a finesse that we need to have certain conversations in order to have people be able to be receptive to them. And when we use words like toxic or, or, you know, things that are demeaning terms, it's like you're, again, we're already talking to people, humans who have a very deep core wound of insecurity and lack of love and and self-shame and all these things. And so, yes, hearing words like toxic and things can be, and, and I, it can be activating. I say activating instead of triggering. And again, it's like, I, I think concise language is really important because our words are very powerful and they have meaning. Mm. And so saying something like, this is not toxic, it's unhealthy, that allows people to open up more so that they can receive the message and be able to start breaking down some of those things um, that are hold that are not allowing them to receive certain messages that will benefit them. The second one was the anger management point. And again, this goes to, and I think as a society, we hear this like, oh, well, that's just manipulation. They're just being manipulative. Like they know right and wrong because they can, they have the ability to control because they do it in these situations. But then when they're with this person, it all comes out. Again, we as a, it, it's so easy to look at a situation and label it without going into the whys, right? Why? Keep asking why, 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 why? And what comes to the core of that, which is that, you know, ultimately it's, they, they have like a more safe space, right? It's the, the trauma that they're carrying that's unresolved. And so unfortunately it's just like kids, right? Kids will be more emotional with their parents than when they're with strangers and being babysat because your parents are your safe space. That's where they can express these emotions. So it it really is, is it's an unhealthy ability to express emotions in a healthy manner. Right. And And I don't think, and I always leave room for, I'm not saying this is for everybody, that there, there probably is a population that has tipped the scale so much and their heart has been hardened. But I think for the most part, Nobody really wants to hurt the people that we love, ultimately. And um, so that was that little point. Um, but yeah, I, I love that. And teaching I love kids that young. Well. I'm sorry. Oh, no, I just say uh, your work, Bobby, like starting to teach kids young, like that's, I think that's such a valuable thing. We have to start teaching children and teenagers and young adults these things so that they can start to mitigate. And, and grow to be able to have healthy expression of emotions. Yeah. yeah. 
Absolutely. And I appreciate both of you being here, having this conversation with us. It's so important. And we're even learning new languaging. I love activating versus triggering and unhealthy versus toxic. And I can't wait for us to continue this conversation. If you're just tuning in, I am Christina Michelle. I'm here with Dr. Camila Robles and Bobby Broomfield, and we're discussing Domestic Violence Awareness Month and prevention. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Welcome back to Culture Rich Conversations. I'm Christina Michelle. My guests today are Dr. Camila Robles and Bobby Brumfield from the Men Against Domestic Violence Coalition. We've been having a conversation about Domestic Violence Awareness Month, which is the month of October, and uh, more importantly, talking about prevention of domestic violence. So in the first segment, we laid a foundation of what the definition of domestic violence is and all the many nuances there are. Um, we talked about uh, the psychology behind why perpetrators or abusers abuse. And also Dr. Robles touched a little bit on um, what might make a person um, prone to uh, being abused. And so um, we're going to continue this conversation. And I would like to talk a little bit about um, where domestic violence can occur outside of the home, because we know that it's not just mm. between partners. It's not just or I shouldn't I should say it's not just between intimate partners. Um, it can happen in other relationships and uh, including the workplace um, and beyond. So can um, we talk a little bit about how else domestic violence occurs? Um, uh, I, I, I can, I guess I could go. Um, sure. So, so my, um, in my work, uh, I work for uh, Landham Advisors, which is a corporate uh, protection management company. And one of the things that we talk about is, is, you know, workplace violence is huge, um, you know, uh, especially after active shooter events. And one of the things that we try to get employers to understand is that domestic violence plays a huge role in workplace violence as well. Um, you know, even with active, active shooters, I mean, there's quite a few where, uh, when, when you do any investigation, you go back and you find out they murdered people at home before they even went out on this on the spree. Wow. Uh, one, one of the things that we also address is, is, you know, you can't, you know, you, we still have a population of leaders who will say, you know, leave it at home. When you get to work, it, you know, your personal life ends at the door. And that's just not realistic. That's that's not uh, it's really not good leadership. Uh, so we we really push back on that hard. Uh, we try to get 
uh, and, and I, I shouldn't say it's, uh, it's rampant. A lot of organizations are understanding it now, uh, but we, we try to get them to put safety plans in place, reach out to the local advocates. They will come in and help you develop a safety plan for your employees. You know, uh, you know, does that, does that mean change their numbers so they can't be harassed at work, you know, change the location of where they work in case that, you know, that abuser knows where they are and harassing them, you know, is, is there so many things that employers can do? So uh, I'm glad that, that, you know, that this particular topic came up because it's very, very important. And a, and a lot of times um, these are the workplaces, a few is one of the few places where they can actually get help uh, because outside of the work, a lot of them are just, you know, a lot of victims are watched constantly that, you know, they're timed. They don't have their phones. Uh, so many, it's just so hard for them to reach out for help. So a lot of times the, the workplace is the only place they really can get some help. Even if that's just having an advocate come in and talk to them over the lunch break or so, cause they may not be ready to leave. So, so we, we're really trying to get employees, employers to, to step up to the plate and, and, and realize that it's, it's not only best for your employee, but it's best for the workplace because you could, you could actually be stopping an act of workplace violence or, or you know, or active shooter. And what are some signs that uh, a coworker or someone that you work with is a uh, victim of domestic violence? Yeah. So the, the, the biggest one are bruises, of course, you know, uh, there's a lot of bruises. Uh, uh, we tell them to look, you know, if there's if if the phone is constantly ringing and it's making them uncomfortable, um, you know, th those are or if 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 they're making comments, uh, don't just blow them off. You know, they may be, you know, tr throwing hints out that, you know, something's not right. Oh, my boyfriend may come up here. You know, you 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 want to hear, you want to listen to those things because, you know, and and I don't I don't want to. I'm not a service provider, so I, I definitely don't want to come across as, as someone that's an, an expert in this. You definitely should reach out to to a local advocate and bring them in, and they could give you a lot more. Uh, but those are the biggest things for us. That you know, look for that bruising. Look for, you know, look for those. It may not be a cry for help. It may be a whimper for help, but don't blow it off. Listen to, to, to see what they're saying. Uh, and if that phone is, if it's some, you know, we all have bad days or we all, you know, but if, if it looks like it is a pattern, you may want to dig a little deeper and, and see if, if, uh, if, if there's abuse involved and, and if they, if they come forward, be prepared to do something, you know, don't, don't just say, Oh, okay, well, we wish you luck. Right. Help them get a safety plan in place. So, uh, so that there, there are signs out there, um, but it's not enough just knowing them and seeing them and recognizing them. You have to be willing to act on them as well. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And I know a lot of people uh, could suspect something, but because they don't feel equipped to help, they might just ignore it. Uh, so knowing who your um, advocates are in your area, like for Juno, our domestic violence shelter is named AWARE and we'll give the information to contact AWARE at the end of the show. But um, AWARE is 24 hours and always has advocates available and they're um, willing and able to uh, to assist uh, with somebody who wants to connect 
a coworker or a family member uh, to services. Um, Dr. Robles, and, did you want to add anything? I'm sorry, Bobby, go ahead. Uh, I was just going to say that that's a great point. Um, you have to have avenues of reporting. Um, a lot of times they'll say, oh, well, we, we noticed something, but we didn't know who to tell. Mm-hmm. Or it was my supervisor, so I couldn't go to my supervisor because it is my supervisor. Make sure that it is well communicated what avenues there are for reporting. Uh, and and empower them, and and you, we all we you know we create um, uh, programs, uh, plans, policies, procedures, and we'll put FEMA and 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 we'll put you know disease control or 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 poison control. We'll put all those things. That's true. We, we need to add the we need to add the local advocates as well. Oh, I like that. Yes. So how would you um, open the conversation? You know, it's an uncomfortable topic. You don't want to offend anybody. You don't want to overstep. You don't want to um, to taint the relationship that you might have with them. Or maybe you don't even have a relationship with them, but you're concerned. Um, What would you what would you say are good ways to open the lines of communication about this? Uh, well, so we push uh, we push for organizations to build crisis management teams, even if it's a two person team and, and have them get that team trained up on on the vulnerabilities or the threats that your organization is facing. And one of those threats is going to be domestic violence. So if if I see someone, a coworker that is that is, you know, I may not know that well or I don't want to get in their business mm-hmm. or, you know, uh, I can go to one of these people on, on my crisis management team, or I can go to my management and say, hey, this is what I'm seeing. And those teams can go and say, hey, look, you know, is everything all right? You know, it, it, you can't, I, I I don't think that you you try to force anyone to tell you anything uh, because, you know, the advocates would tell you all the time that it, it may take up to seven tries before they actually leave. Yes. But you want to you just want to make sure that they understand that if, if you when you're ready, these are some of the things that we can provide. We can do a safety plan. We can do all of this. But, but uh, again, it's, it's not it's not PR or good marketing or so you got to be ready to to act. You, you you have to be prepared to if you're gonna say you're offering that help, you gotta be ready to do it. Uh, and that's what we we really trying to get employers to understand. Got it. Thank you, Bobby. Dr. Robles, did you wanna to add to that? Uh, I think he made so many good points again. And and the workplace wasn't something necessarily that I've really thought about before, but that is a very interesting topic to bring up and just some of the things I was kind of taking notes about is you know we it's this it's the cultural shift that we need to have and the stigma that revolves around being abused in general and then specifically being like a, a victim of domestic violence because there's just so much shame that goes with it a lot of cognitive dissonance uh, which later we can you know maybe we could touch on but you know, and denial, cognitive distance is basically a form of denial that, you know, you're even in this situation. And then we're wanting to also protect our partners, like, you know, because we kind of don't believe that this is really happening. And I'm speaking from the perspective of somebody who's, you know, my, my experience with some of this and, and also what people might experience with it, but just feeling a lot of shame um, in that to be able to even bring that up to an employer. But I guess some of the signs 
And, and I think he touched on most of them, you know, but again, it's like changes in characteristic of that person. Like, was this person initially like on time and punctual and engaged? And then all of a sudden, like they're late all the time. They seem really chaotic and scatterbrained all of a sudden. You know, a lot of the times these are subtle little things that we kind of just chalk up to regular life stress, but these could be some things that we're, we're hiding something deeper. Um, isolation, you know, it's a lot of the times, you know, you if you invite somebody who is in that situation, they, they might not join or it's, you know, they're, they're never allowed to get out to go and participate with somebody. So I guess looking for like, does this person have healthy community and really trying to plug that person in over time into a healthy community setting where they're not so isolated because that isolation is really where, again, the masks come on and it's hard to even know that you're, or, you know, be able to realize that you're in that situation or that you even need help before, unfortunately, it just gets too bad and it's almost too late. So I think what Bobby said was pretty, pretty on point with all of that. And I really like the including it in you know, where you have all the, the other, you know, HIPAA and all that other stuff right. um, yeah. <laughs> as a resource. But again, it's just this, like, unfortunately, I'm just, I, I I just don't see a lot of support from employers. A lot of the times, unfortunately, women in these situations or people, I say women because of my experience, but men and women in these situations, they can lose their job, you know, and then from losing their job, they're kind of stuck in that situation even more because now they don't have a financial means of supporting them. So I think it is definitely important to start bringing these messages to employers. Um, but again, this is actually like a whole nother show, but like, you know, the appreciation of employers for their employees, you know, it's like we're kind of living in a country where we don't even have most of the rights most, you know, developed nations have in the workplace. So adding this one, you know, seems a little bit um, like something where we definitely we need to work really hard at, at having can and then I, I think it's getting better. I think more employers are, are really understanding the need from a domestic standpoint, but it's a touch it's a touchy subject and and a lot of people are nervous to to go down that road. But you know, as a leader, you you have to you have to you have to be willing to go down that road for for the health of your employees. Yes. Can you guys give us an example of some languaging that you could use? So, Bobby, I love um, the mission that you um, that you're on to have like a, a department or point person, you know, people in each workplace that this is their specific thing. It's kind of like HR. You go to HR if somebody's you know harassing you or if you feel like you're not receiving the, the pay that you deserve. Um, there would be somebody that you go to in your company who could be an advocate for you for, um, you know, if you're experiencing DV or someone you work with is. But if you don't have that and you are the person how would you suggest that you uh, approach someone? Like what could be an example of an opening? Like, would is it better to just ask flat out, you know, are you safe at home? Are you being hurt? I've observed mm. this. Or, you know, would you just kind of like give them a brochure or 
text them a link or like what yeah. <laughs> what do we do? You, you, you know what? I, I think that is it's kind of hard to say there's, you know, one or two ways to do it. It's going to depend on that individual, I think. Uh, and it, it may be, like you said, it, it may be just hanging um, some domestic violence information in the, in the restrooms, uh, you know, and letting them find it on their own. Um, but if you have a good relationship with people and you can, you can laugh and joke daily and all of that, you should be comfortable enough to pull them to the side and say, you, you know, you haven't been yourself. Is, is there something that, you know, I can do or, um, you know, but it's, you know, we don't want to, you know, I tell people all the time, you don't want to look at it as I'm going to get this person in trouble. If I report that I see something wrong, you want to, you think of it as I'm going to get this person some help before it gets worse. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, that's the mindset uh, shift that I think that we need to get our employees, the coworkers to, to have, uh, you know, that's that security culture. And, and now I don't want to start digging too deep into it, but, you know, you, you talk about psychological safety. It's important to build that in your organizations, because if 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 I know I report either me as a, being a victim or if I report someone I think is a victim, nothing bad is going to happen to that person based mm-hmm. on that reporting. And and that that has to be well communicated. You can't just assume that people know it. Um, but but I think it, it's just every person is different. So I, I don't know that there is a, a you know, like a, a magic question that you can ask. I think you just you just have to take it person by person. And, and, and if, you know, if worse comes to worse, throw some domestic violence stuff on the on the walls where you hang information and and, and let them find, find it on their own. So, you know, just make sure it's available for them. And I hope I, I hope I'm not trying to sound like I'm passing a bug, but I, I just don't think there's oh, no. I don't think there's a magic question that we can we can no. I I agree with you 100. percent I think this is such a multi like even just that one question we can have a show about because there it's just so multifaceted, right? Because number one, it's going to be individually, it's going to be based on the individual. Then we have to realize again, like when you truly understand all these components of abuse and how much denial plays into it, I think twofold, we need to number one, understand that we alone aren't going to be able to make all the changes for this person. And whether this is domestic violence or addiction, right, it's all kind of the same. It comes back to that person's ability to start unveiling, you know, start, start the undoing process. And I think if, if there was anything I could go back, like I'm going back to myself, right. And I see somebody who it's, you know, uh, hold on, let me back up just a little bit. So, you know, I have had a situation with a friend who's in a situation that it's, I mean, there's, there's just a lot of different abuse things going on that they're not willing to see. It is not my responsibility to make them see that. I think that's number one. We need to realize it's not a responsibility to make them see that. But if we have the ability to bring something to them that will start helping them to look and discover these things on their own, that is really, I think, going to be the most beneficial thing that we can do. So for instance, you know, I I shoot her a video like, oh, watch this YouTube video that talked about financial abuse and her partner does not allow her to have a bank account. They've been married, you know, X amount of time. 
you know, it's supposed to be this very, like, you're the woman, you don't work, you can volunteer. But, and so there's all these signs, they've only been married a little bit of impending things in the future. But again, I can't try to make her see this, right? So I think number one, have compassion for people and love people the best that you can and try to drop just little seeds. You know, it's those little bitty seeds of knowledge that eventually, you know, over time, hopefully they accumulate and can start growing the tree of of rebirth and rediscovery and, and start, you know, either addressing these situations and recognizing, okay, this isn't right. And I need, my, you know, maybe my partner would have the ability to hear me and we can work through some of these things in therapy because really a lot of times by the time people get into therapy, that is where they start really opening their eyes. Like, okay, this person is not going to hear me. They're not going to change. They start learning the skills of coping, you know, that, that they don't typically have right now, you know, a lot of more independence, um, and really try to empower people really, I think is the the key. If we can empower somebody in that situation to number one, recognize their situation. And then number two, recognize that they have the ability uh, to get out of that. And again, you know, there's, there's obviously really extreme situations that Bobby mentioned where a partner is timing you and putting cameras in your car and all that, but that doesn't happen overnight, right? That's not first date material. Right. You don't, you don't start dating somebody and then they have a camera in your car. Let's yeah. be real. If you found that out, you probably maybe walk say, away right away. You know, yeah. Right. Walk away right away. That's the thing. And we'll talk about like, you know, how, how we end up in these situations. It's these little things it's grooming, you know, and like grooming you to see, will you take this abuse, you know, and to kind of get you hooked and then it's this this slow process that kind of unfolds over time. But um, again, I don't think that there's one thing that we could do or one thing that we can say. But number one, having that knowledge within ourselves and then being able to drop drop that information for them to start making that decision. That's, I think, where the real power and transformation comes from. Thank you so much to both of you for answering that question. I know it's not an easy one, um, but I I just think about it it is hard. And I think about the training that I took, uh, the first training I took about suicide prevention. And one of the biggest things that stuck out to me was that if you ask someone if they're thinking about suicide, it's not going to make them think about suicide if they weren't already. It's not going to hurt them to say it. Mm, um, and yes. the trainer said something like, you know, if if you don't want to eat a pickle and somebody says, would you like a pickle? That's not going to make you want a pickle. So, And it kind of lightened, you know, the mood a little bit and the subject made it easier to talk about. Um, but that always stuck with me and I really appreciated it. And so now I feel more comfortable if I'm afraid that someone's thinking about that. I've had that training and I can say, hey, you know, I've noticed this and that. And I'm wondering if you've been thinking about, you know, suicide. So if we can have the same approach with, you know, someone who we suspect is, is being being abused if we you know can say hey I'm concerned and this is what I'm seeing and I'm wondering if like just to know that that's not going to it's not going to to harm like it, the the chances of it doing um of it helping are far greater than of it hurting so yeah and I think the key word that she used was empower yes. you know that that that's very very important that we're empowering everyone in in that you know, empowering that that victim to come forward, empowering those coworkers, empowering that you know the community to to step up, and that you know that's key. That, that that's my favorite word. And intentional 
and and empowerment are, are yes. the two, two words mm. that we really need to focus on in it. Yes. I love that. Um, before we wrap up this segment, can we talk a little bit about um what a person, what advice you would give to someone who recognizes that they are in an abusive relationship or there's some unhealthy um, behavior and patterns happening uh, and maybe they're not quite ready to reach out or to say anything to someone, but what what are some ways that they can help to start uh making the the transition out of the relationship? How can they keep themselves safe? What are some safety planning tips? I think, um, so just to, I want to make sure I'm really understanding this question. So if somebody is in that relationship, what advice would be given to them as they're slowly trying to transition out of it or? Correct. Okay. Yeah, if they're not ready, like, on this real quick. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Passing that to you. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, so, so you, you know, I, I know it's not, um, you know, it takes a, a lot for for victims to leave, especially if children are involved. And, mm-hmm. you know, I, I think what and we have young men that have come up to us. I've never given a talk or or held a session where a young man did not come up and say either his mom is going through something or his sister is going through something. Um but the big thing is open up those avenues uh, of support with, with your local advocates because advocates really get it and, and they know that it may take you a long time to, to actually walk away. But you got that phone number and, you know, you have that you started that dialogue with someone that understands what you're going through. Uh, and, and I think that's really key um, because it, it may be, you know, 2 a.m. when you decide to make that move and, and you got someone that's, that has some background on what's going on with you. And and if, if not an advocate, you know, a close friend or, or you know, there, but someone is willing that, you know, is willing to take some action. Um, I, I would I would definitely have them just you have to open up just this. You know, if you're not ready, you're not ready. But, you know, when I am ready to go, this is what I'm going to need. And again, you know, I'm always going to push people towards local advocates because, they, I mean, they just have so many resources available uh, that 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 can help. So uh, that, that would be my answer to them is just get that dialogue started, whether you're ready to go now or not, get that dialogue going. Yes. And I just feel like with that question, my brain just goes into so many different places, right? Because again, this is such a multifaceted situation. And it's like, are we talking about, you know, a relationship that has been healthy, but salvageable through means of of therapeutic endeavors and, and things of that nature? Or are we talking about like a relationship where it's just so far gone and you are getting abused every single night in front of your children and you've been financially stripped of your power? And, you know, it's like there's just so many things that's like, you know, everybody would be a little bit different. But I guess if I was considering a situation with a woman who is somewhat aware, and I guess that's the thing too, right? It's like, the very first thing is we got to understand, are you aware that you're even being abused? Are you, are you, and if you are aware of it, you know, um, and you want 
to get out of that situation, right? There's a desire to get out of that situation, but you're just still trapped in like these, these false pretenses that we kind of put on ourselves, right? Like, well, I don't want my kids to be without a dad or how am I going to do this? Cause I haven't worked in so long or, you know, I think again, it's the empowerment. It's showing that it's possible, right? That you can, like, this is not something that you have to stick through. Yes. And yes, things are going to be challenging and they're going to be you know, painful, but it's not going to be more painful than the grief of sticking, trying to stick it out in this situation, thinking that things are going to get better when they're never going to get better, you know? And I, and I don't even like the word saying never, but most likely not going to improve in this situation. Right. And, and helping people to see, you know, that I know basically to write, what I would tell her is write down the reasons that you are not leaving yet in one column, and then take each and every one of them and you have to start breaking them down and realizing that, well, that's not true because of this. And again, how do you do that? Mm. You got to have, you got to have, that's where you reach out to the advocates, find yourself mentorship, start, you know, start, and again, an exit plan. Okay. So if finances is your issue, then every time he gives you money to go to the grocery store, say that he gives you a budget of a hundred dollars, you take $20 and, you know, you know, and again, maybe he'll ask for receipts, right? But there's ways that you can start putting, yes. putting away your pennies, finding a safe place, bury it in the backyard. I had one lady I worked with who would bury her money in the backyard. And, and that's how she got her savings, you know, to be able to make that transition. So this is the thing is like, it is all possible. It is possible. It's not going to be easy. We cannot diminish the struggles. Um, and, and there's still even going to be struggles way after you're out of that relationship, or maybe sometimes you think like, man, maybe I should have just stayed in that. It would have been easier, you know, there right. and kind of bring it back to my situation. When I was going through residency after, you know, he went to jail for assaulting me, there were times like, cause I had no support. I had no family. I had nobody to help me with my kids. And there were times I was like, man, I should have just stayed in this domestically violent relationship because then at least I would have support and I could make it to work on time. Mm. Again, that goes into having resources for people who have gone through these situations to support and uplift and things like that. But, you know, the unfortunate reality is sometimes that's not always the case, but the reason it's not the case is because we didn't, I didn't take steps to build a community. Right. So it's like, now that I've had this time off, I've built that community that can help me and, and replace those things that he provided that I thought I could not get from anywhere else. So it's kind of like that, you know, that you're, you're not irreplaceable in the words of Beyonce, realizing that nobody is, but everybody is replaceable yes. in some context. You just have to work a little bit harder to find those things, you know, and, and you've got to really start that self-reflection process and understanding why am I staying in this? What is the actual benefit? Why am I doing this to myself kind of in a way? And and from there, like you can really start to just build something. There, there's so much beauty on the other side of it too. When you start reaching that place of independence and, and you start to find self-love and self-compassion and confidence and, and, and learning healthy relationships, mostly with yourself and then with others. Um, so just again, just letting them know that it is possible. <laughs> A lot, a lot of words to say that, but it is oh, possible. I love it. Oh my goodness. Thank you so, so much, Dr. Camila Robles and uh, Bobby. You guys have answered some really tough questions here today. Um, and I just appreciate it. And I know that our listeners do too. 
Um, if you or someone you know is experiencing domestic violence or believed yourself to be in an abusive relationship, there are resources available. Our local domestic violence shelter is open 24 hours a day. The number is 586-1090. You can also call the National Domestic Violence Hotline at 1-800-799-7233. If you are a perpetrator of domestic violence and want help, you can reach out to AWARE's Juno Choice and Accountability Program. It's also known as JCAP, and the phone number is 586-6623. This is Culture Rich Conversations. I'm Christina Michelle, and we'll be right back with Today in Black History. Support from Hanson Gress. Seeking curious people who like technology, network engineering, and customer support. Opportunities for those who thrive on problem solving. Details at hansongress.com slash careers. Welcome back to Culture Rich Conversations. I'm Christina Michelle. Today in Black History, we celebrate the first woman president of the NAACP, Enolia P. McMillan, who was born on October 20th in 1904. McMillan was known to speak her mind, never backing down from a challenge, and we appreciate the work that she has done for the Black community. I want to thank again my guests for being here today, Bobby and Dr. Robles. And uh, for those who want to connect with you, can you tell us really quick how uh, we can do that? Um, well, uh, so we're at at MadVac, and, and I, I'm going to butcher our uh, email address because uh, I never send anything to it. So, um, but it's MadVacOmaha at gmail.com, I believe. Okay. Um, I hope I'm right. And we can confirm uh, that, that and okay. we'll post it yeah. on our Facebook page. And yeah. Dr. Rowland. Oh, go ahead. Sorry. Oh, and, oh no. Go, did you? No, I, okay. I was just going to say we're all volunteers, so so there's no set phone number or or so you know we we have that email. That that's about it. Send us an email and and if there's some information we can get to you, we'll we'll track it down and get it to you. Thank you so much. And Dr. Robles, how can we reach you? So, and again, I'm not sure if I could say this on the air, but uh, you can find me on Facebook at un. Effing okay. yourself and <laughs> effing your neurals at uh, on Facebook right now. I'm still working on kind of getting more of an online platform and presence with that. Uh, but right now you can find me on Facebook and I need to work on getting a better email, but you can also email me at newhope, N-E-W-H-O-P-E 108 at gmail.com. Perfect. Thank you so much. Today's show was produced by Natasha Boozer. And until next week, may your life be blessed and flow with ease. I'm Christina Michelle, and this has been Culture Rich Conversations. You're listening to Culture Rich. Culture Rich. Culture Rich.